Welcome back to the Desert Springs Church Podcast. It exists to supplement the ministry and growth of the body here at Desert Springs Church. My name is Drew. I'm here again with Chase and Ryan today, and we want to talk about something that we experience uh, as Christians uh, on average once a week, and that's preaching, um, and specifically what we call expositional preaching. So what is it? Is it what we experience at Desert Springs Church? Um, Why do we adhere to this model of preaching? Um, We were discussing earlier that preaching is is something that's so central to our gatherings, it's so central to the life of a Christian, but it's not something we talk about uh, very often, just the the mechanism of preaching. Mm -hmm. So Ryan, Chase are here to help us think through expositional preaching and and how um, and how every member of DSC uh, and why every member of DSC should care about expositional preaching and and how that could help us grow as a church and help us grow as sermon listeners and sermon receivers. Mm-hmm. So let's start as we often do with a definition. And uh, Ryan, you can help us out with what is expositional preaching, and then later on we'll talk a little bit more about why we should care about expositional preaching. So what is it, Ryan? Uh, so I'll offer my own definition, and I'm not sure how much this borrows from others. I'm sure a plenty, but I like to say that it's um, the theme, aim, and tone of the sermon uh, coincides with the theme, aim, and tone of a text. It's expositional preaching. It's exposing the text as opposed to something else. It's not eisegesis, as we say, bringing something into the text. It's exegeting the text uh, and showing the relevance for our people. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's about it. You read every preaching book, and they have a slightly different definition of what preaching is. And uh, But that's the general idea. You know, if you're preaching a sermon, one, that we would start with a text. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't start with a topic. We wouldn't start with an idea that we want to get across and then find Scripture verses to support that or validate that. But we start with a text of Scripture and the preacher's job is to get up and expose. That's where expositional comes from, is just expose that text, put that text in front of people such that uh, the meaning of the text is the meaning of the sermon, even the structure of the text informs the structure of the sermon, that um, you want people to walk away knowing what that text was saying, what the the aim of that text was for them, and then how that does uh, apply to their life. So it's it's not expositional lectures, it's expositional preaching. So it's um, something mm-hmm. that is moving them to uh, a faith in Jesus and to a gospel-fueled response from that text. So would you say those are some of the key features that that divide teaching and preaching? Yeah, and that's a, that's a perennial debate, is <laughs> what is the difference between uh, teaching and preaching? Um, and, I, and I would say that. I think that uh, what makes preaching one is it, it leads to um, a kind of worship, that it's a gospel-fueled worship, and that it comes with kind of an applicational force, that um, this, uh, this expects what I'm talking about, because it is the Word of God, is going to come with power that transforms and changes in light of the gospel. So I'm not just giving you information, I'm giving you uh, life change leading to worship. Yeah. I would say all preaching teaches, but not all teaching preaches. Oh, that's good. Uh, so there's something more in preaching than just instruction. There's exhortation. Yeah. There's um, something of imploring. Uh, you're preaching to the affections. I, l- I love the the old Piper book on this is The Supremacy of God in Preaching, and the subtitle had expository exaltation mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. 
And maybe that's the which was another name book of that his he, new yeah. book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. His new called. and fuller book on preaching is Expository Exaltation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's really good. So back to a, a simple definition. It's it's having the main point of the sermon be the main point of the text, to put it uh, simply, um, or just trying to draw out what is there and not put in uh, anything or add or take away uh, from what is actually there in God's Word. So. On that point, can I share a Charles Simeon quote? Yeah. Charles Simeon was a pastor in Cambridge uh, in the 1800s, and uh, he's the the reason the Simeon Trust is named uh, the Simeon Trust. It's after him. And he famously said, My endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there and not to thrust in what I think might be there. He said, I have a great jealousy on this never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the Spirit in the passage I am expounding. Hmm. Excellent. That's just a much better way of saying what I tried to say a few and seconds that's ago. that's why he's so worth quoting just a quote, couple hundred years later. Quote Chuck, <laughs> when in doubt, uh, yeah. about expositional preaching. Excellent. Um, so, is expositional preaching the only kind of preaching? First part of that question. Um, is it the only legitimate kind of preaching? Um, and and then we can get into maybe some examples of bad bad preaching or bad models of preaching. I would say it's close to the only kind. Now, it doesn't have only one form. Mm. So it's not only eight verses at a time, or if you're in the Old Testament, one chapter at a time. It can be larger sections. Um, I don't think it would not be expository preaching to have um, more than one passage as a, a, a primary point, as long as those passages are rightly understood in their historical and literary context. Uh, so I think, you know, Peter does this in Acts 2. He's preaching from Joel in a couple of other passages, but mainly Joel. The book of Hebrews, some have proposed, is made up of maybe seven or so different Old Testament passages with Exhort, uh, explanation, exhortation, and application um, strewn throughout uh, after each one. Now, it could have been that they were seven individual sermons that have kind of been uh, reduced down to their, their form that we find in Hebrews to make up one letter. But still, but the point is, um, it, it, we, we shouldn't be so rigid about it's always eight verses, it's always one chapter, it's always just a single text— but is the text in the driver's seat? Huh. Uh, are we tethered to the text? Or are we bringing to the text an agenda and then looking for that agenda in the text? That would be a bad way of preaching the Bible. That's not preaching. Before we get to bad, uh, maybe poor examples of preaching, um, just to clarify on that, uh, I agree with everything you just said, And is, uh, but is expositional preaching always uh, verse by verse? book by book. Is that expositional preaching, or like you said, expositional preaching can can shift around? I mean, yeah. just the other day, I jumped into Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. We hadn't preached anything coming before it or what's going to come after it, so that was for one sermon, but even that was expositional. I had my text defined 
Um, and it was a short text. It was four verses, but I wanted to give the meaning of that uh, that text and what it was. So I don't think it has to be verse by verse through the book of the Bible uh, or through books of the Bible like that. But I think that's really wise for a church to commit to preaching through books of the Bible like we do. Yeah. It's taken the Bible on its own terms. The, the Bible was given to us in books. Um, these books have, you know, the chapters in our English Bibles. Of course, the chapters weren't there originally, but this passage comes before this next passage, and then there's another one after that. There's a, a logical sequence to it. So if you only do one-offs, even expositional one-offs like you did, mm-hmm. so Titus 2 was the Lord's Supper, and maybe next Sunday is Matthew 24, and then the Sunday after that is Zechariah 14, because that's what you went, you know, you, that's what moved you by Thursday the, the week before <laughs> yeah. and um, and got you thinking about, you know, this being your sermon text. If that's all you do, you miss how God's Word is revealed to us in books and in context of passages before and after. Not to mention there's this terrible pressure on you to pick what passage you want to preach yeah. that Sunday. And, you know, one of the things, and we've talked about this often, is that when you commit to preaching through a whole book of the mm-hmm. Bible, God in his sovereignty forces you to talk about things that if you were just picking stuff to talk about, right. I wouldn't have picked Nehemiah 12 right. to preach, you know, mm-hmm. um, that it was a list of names and some people singing, you know, but yeah. but committing to that kind of forced us together as a church to think about what is God saying to us through this passage of scripture, because it is all God breathed, and that was really helpful. So I think that's, what, again, why it's wise to preach through whole books of the Bible, to get the whole counsel of God, like Paul said. Yeah. And if a church got used to a steady diet of merely one-offs, um, I would, I, myself, I wouldn't trust myself that I wouldn't be doing hobby horses, favorites, and or, like you alluded to, Chase, avoiding texts that are tough. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, my dad was a pastor for years, and and he would preach through books of the Bible, and he said mainly because... He's not clever enough to come up with what to preach the next week. Mm-hmm. So he just trusts the Lord. To, he starts at chapter one and just preaches through. And Ryan, you're really thoughtful about how we even pick which books of the Bible to preach through. So tell us about that. Yeah, it's in our uh, forthcoming newsletter article. I mentioned that. Um, the short of it, not to be too repetitive with what I wrote in the newsletter article, but we alternate uh, testaments, Old Testament and New Testament generally, uh, we alternate genres, styles of literature. Um, so if, you know, the last time we were in the New Testament, we did an epistle. We probably won't go back to a, an epistle the next time we're in the New Testament. Um, and then we actually do consider, um, okay, so where is our church right now? What do we need? What are we going through? Uh, so in the newsletter article, I used two examples, one being when the COVID era hit, I thought those psalms in the 90s of God's reign would be really useful for us. We needed to hear and hear and hear again and again that God reigns. He reigns over all his creation, and he's good and righteous in it. Uh, and then the other example I used is Galatians, our next sermon series. Um, I think we could use Galatians right now in part because it is so gospel-saturated, gospel-centered, uh, the gospel is so clear in it, and uh, I think we have a unique temptation right now to be distracted about many things and even divided about many things, politics, race issues, social justice issues, important issues, mm-hmm. um, but but not central 
not a, not not what the gospel is. Mm-hmm. And so I think Galatians will sort of beat that one drum of the gospel for us. Uh, so that was a, a small consideration is just where are we at right now and and uh, and of course what we haven't done in the last 10 to 15 years. So I keep a, a record yeah. and of what we've done and and I'm kind of aware of that and um, yeah, that's some of what goes into picking the next book of the Bible. Yeah, and preaching through a book verse by verse isn't in and of itself expositional preaching. So you could still preach verse by verse, book, uh, chapter by chapter, um, and and preach in ways that we would consider problematic. So let's transition to talk about some of those problematic preaching styles mm. that might be more popular uh, in some churches and uh, and why we think that they're problematic. Yeah, I think one of the one of the problems that we can see in preaching is someone that is uh, is not really giving adequate attention to the text and trying to discern what the text is actually saying, what the author's aim was in that text. They kind of study it in a in a sort of superficial way until they get to something that they know is going to be um, a punchy, exciting encouraging message that they can just get up and talk about. And so it may be uh, really entertaining. It may be even really inspiring. But when you walk away, if you say, do I actually know that text better? Do I know um, what Paul was trying to say through that text? Or or do I just get uh, something that's almost like a TED Talk or a motivational speech that used some Bible ostensibly as uh, the starting off point? The preacher uses the text as a springboard to then yeah. dive off in any direction that they right. want, that right. they want, that yeah. they think that their listeners will be yeah. engaged with. And you almost get the sense like they spent more time maybe working on that illustration than they did on working on the, the historical context and the grammar and the um, structure of the passage that they were preaching out of. Yeah. Yeah, some will take the theme of the passage and essentially do a sermon, a topical sermon on that theme but it's no longer tethered to, to use that word again, it's no longer on the terrain of the text uh, in such a way that it almost is a topical sermon. Um, so there's that. Another misstep, I think, would be the running commentary. Like I think you were alluding to this, Drew, is yeah. there's this running commentary kind of preaching which uh, misses literary structure, hmm. right? So a passage may be... Um, communicating a narratival arc, uh, a plot. Um, and, and if you miss the climax of this, you're going to really miss the whole point of it. Not every verse is communicating with as much weight as other verses. That doesn't mean it's any less inspired, right. any less authoritative, but what's the story doing? Yeah. Uh, you got to be looking for something like the plot arc or you know the different characters involved or um, what else? Uh, literary structure. When you come to Pauline epistles, you've got, you know, just the grammar of it mm-hmm. in the heavy use of prepositions. There are the logical argument and the things that, yeah, you know, so that that would look like somebody taking a really minor point in the passage and making it the major point of the sermon. Yeah. Um, you know, even to get off on a weird tangent about the, you know, third definition use of this Greek word and making the whole sermon about this, you know, main, really was nothing about the force of what that passage was about, but you've used something that piqued your interest to, to jump off and talk about that. Um, I think another uh, issue is, and this this is kind of similar to what I was talking about before, but this comes more from um, men that 
think a lot about things. They have really strong convictions about um, any number of things. Maybe it's like a doctrinal conviction or a political conviction or some you know cultural hobby horse that they really want to pound. And they'll kind of use a text as a pretext to really just preach this conviction that they have. Um, and, and again, it's just this is not arising out of the text. This is something that they're importing into the sermon. Yeah, they're using the text to support what they want to talk about right? instead of using the text as illumination and then preaching what is in the text. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned the word topical, Ryan. I think a lot of people that would listen to this podcast probably have an, a category for that. Um, maybe let's talk a little bit more about topical preaching, um, what it is and maybe what it isn't. Because we've had times in, in, in our history here where we've preached through uh, what we call themes or thematic sermon series, uh, the I Ams, the, uh, the the Light series we did uh, a couple years ago, um, and the uh, yeah the most recent Advent series of who who he says I am, or even the next series. And the next series would be yeah, I think the right. best example. So talk about maybe what what the difference could be between maybe problematic topical preaching that you yeah. talked about, and then what maybe some people would see as topical preaching, but maybe it isn't. Well, a topical series, or maybe better, a thematic series isn't topical preaching. So uh, with our next series a while back, uh, we had specific passages we were looking at one per week, and we were doing exposition in those passages. But we wanted to say, all right, as we think about what's next for us as a church, especially related to ministry initiatives and even um, facility usage around here. Um, where do we go in the Bible to sort of get uh, some some energy and some clarity? And uh, so we, we looked at, I think, what, six different passages or so, maybe five. Um, so that's not topical preaching. Topical preaching, I you know, I think it could be really useful in a Sunday school class. It's topical teaching per se, but I mean, why not in a Sunday school class, uh, you know, a, a men's huddle, why not get, you know, preaching or heart-oriented? So I'm, I'm not drawing a line between teaching and preaching here so much as to say, um, looking at everything the Bible has to say about marriage, that's a good thing to do. Yeah. That's, that's a great marriage class. Uh, you want to do that. You want to sort of almost systematize all that the Bible says. Systematic theology does this, and so we're not a church that's against systematic theology. Right. We want to know where does the Bible speak of God's sovereignty, and what picture does it piece together for us from these parts all over the Bible at different times? What's the composite picture of our sovereign God? Um, so that's useful, really yeah. important. Uh, it's just that it's probably not most useful for Sunday morning sermons. Yeah. As far as like a diet chart, if you were going to diagram percentage of how much we intake sermons of 100%, we want the majority of that diet to be expositional because we believe that God's Word is where the power is, yeah. right? We believe that it is God's Word. It's living and active, um, and it has all that we need for life and godliness. So we want we want that to be doing the speaking and not not what we can come up with and create as far as clever topics and how we address these topics, though they those do have value in other venues. But yeah. for the preaching, uh, for the gathered church, we want God's Word to be at the center of it. Yeah, because a topical discussion, there's just a lot of the teacher inserted into that process. Mm. The teacher is curating these different 
um, these different verses from different places that you're putting together to make a point, hopefully that's submitted to what God actually thinks is true about those things, you know, so you're trying to be faithful in that. But yeah, that's what, that, there's a theological conviction that undergirds our commitment to expositional preaching, which is God's word is the thing that has power by his spirit. And what people need on a Sunday morning is to not hear Ryan or mine opinions about certain things going on in their life. They just need to hear God's word. It's God's word mm-hmm. that makes dry bones come to life. Mm-hmm. And so we want to just stand up there, open up the word so that people can see it. We're just kind of a vehicle to bring the word to bear and uh, and, and trusting that that's the thing that's, that's really going to change people. Yeah. This relates to what the second Helvetic confession says about preaching. It says that the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Yeah. So there's something about when the Word of God is preached accurately, God speaks afresh. It's not just old words regurgitated. Uh, it's not just um, teaching you know, from an old text, even as accurate as that might be. Uh, true preaching when it is true preaching, it is God preaching afresh. And I know you feel that burden. I do. When, yeah. um, that's when we're preparing a sermon to preach. It's I want everything that I say to be right about what God's Word is saying because mm-hmm. there is that burden, right? There's that weight that I'm yeah. standing up and I'm, and I'm, you know, not in a weird way and in, in, in a prophetic role, right? I'm You're standing up there God. and speaking the oracles of God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I want to be really, really sure that what I'm saying is accurate. A re-revealing of, yeah. of God's uh, nature, character, person, work, and word. Yeah, it's it's a weighty, weighty task. Uh, I'm thankful for brothers like you guys that do it so well and so humbly and, and ask that anyone who's listening and, and all of our members to be uh, much in prayer I spend a lot of uh, Saturday nights praying for, for you guys and praying for whoever's going to be preaching on Sunday, and I would commend that to to anyone. If you care about your own soul, uh, pray for those who are preaching mm-hmm. uh, and pray for those who are preparing God's Word for you each and every week. Uh, well, that's a little bit about the theological convictions we have for why expositional preaching is so important. It is the Bible is God's Word, uh, gives us what we need, um, and He is the He is the author of it. Um, so we know we can we can trust it if we get it right. Yeah. So good ex- uh, exposition, it's built on good exegesis. Uh, so you guys, you you nerds can talk to us about that and tell us what are principles for good exegesis or good understanding of the text. Literary context, historical context, so so I'll take those one yeah, at a yeah, time. Yeah, you mentioned those earlier. So yeah. Literary context is what's going on around it and the passage itself. So then from literary context, we're talking also structure structure of the passage itself, how does it work, um, what, what what are its points, is there a reason why we, we communicate often in preaching points, because... There's a skeleton There's under a skeleton the text, there, yeah. But it's covered with flesh and clothes, and we, yeah. and we can't always see it. Mortimer Adler, How mm-hmm. to Read a Book, the classic <clears throat> book, How to Read a Book, tells us that uh, in every book there is a skeleton there, and that's our job as readers is to you know, remove some of the flesh and try to figure out what the, the structure is. Um, so that's part of it, literary uh, structure, um, historical context, knowing where you are, what's what's the backstory. You know, um, from, the, from the book of Philippians, we can sort of ascertain a, a story that took place. We also get it from Acts 16, where Paul was in Philippi. Uh, we can piece together this backstory. It's part of the historical context. 
Uh, of course, you know, we're in Nehemiah these days, or we have been, and um, and there's a historical context. We're very aware of the fact that this is one of the later books of the Old Testament. Um, it, it, it ends with a, a <laughs> bit of a thud, mm. um, with a downer, and, uh, and we know 400 silent years follow this. And dot, so dot, it, dot. It, yeah, it's a book of um, great disappointment and anticipation. Yeah. So historical context is uh, another factor. What else, Chase? Yeah, uh, I would say literary genre. So mm. it's important to know what kind of book you're studying um, so that you can have the right the right cues and the right interpretive lens. You know, if I'm reading an apocalyptic portion of scripture, I'm not going to read that like it's a historical narrative. You know, you're going to have different rules of interpretation. So um, really, you know, the Bible's got a few big genres. There's narratives that are telling stories. Um, there's poetic literature that uh, is uses a lot of imagery. Imagery, it's got a lot of um, kind of distinct literary structure to it that is important to understand how to interpret it. And then there's things that are really more just kind of like discourses, you know, long teaching, the epistles are all kind of these logical arguments laid out. And yeah, you have to kind of know the different rules. So for example, like we kind of mentioned with an epistle or a discourse, you're really paying attention to the discourse markers and the things that set apart one argument from another argument and then how, especially relational terms, you know, so to be looking for uh, words like for and therefore or but and then because, yeah. because and and you're, those are going to matter a whole lot more when you're looking at trying to understand what the overall argument of a discourse is. Yeah. So like a carpenter has different tools for different jobs, we have different interpreting tools for different literary genres within within our whole Bible. Yeah, that's yeah. right. One of my favorite aspects of exegesis is what we call the melodic line. So as the musician, that's no surprise. Mm. Uh, that makes sense to me, mm. uh, that each song is going to have a, a hook or a melody uh, that is central to the entire song. Give us an example. Um, uh, well... Well, the first one that comes to mind is is the theme of Star Wars. <laughs> so, it's like the hero theme. Every time that kicks in, you you you're just brought to brought back to the the middle of the story mm. of the Star Wars story mm-hmm. that it's about good overcoming evil, and yeah. that and that and that just brings you there. So, and so, in the movie, it kind of starts with that theme, and yeah. then the music it maybe is away. in the same yeah. notes or tune, yep. but it's not. And then it comes up. Once or yeah. twice again, and yeah. then it's at the end. Yeah, yeah. And it's contrasted with whenever Darth Vader appears. Dun, it's... Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. yeah, so it goes, it goes minor. Yeah. Right. Um, but, but yeah, bringing it back to biblical, we could do a whole podcast on, <laughs> so on Star Wars. Yeah. Star Wars theme. And, and Lord of the Rings themes and John oh, Williams songs. Uh, yeah, but, but the melodic line in, in Scripture is there as well if we, if we listen carefully. Uh, and by listening, we have to study a, a text, we study its context, and then we will start to hear a melodic line. So you guys talk a little bit more about how, how we, we try to use the melodic line to, uh, to, to yeah, preach. Yeah, well, like, you know, the classic examples from David Helm, uh, who talks about this with the book of Jude, and giving Jude a couple of reads, which is easy to do because it's a short book, you'll start to notice that the word kept comes up in multiple mm-hmm. places, kind mm-hmm. of at the beginning, in the middle, and the end, in different ways. And so it's God that keeps us as we keep ourselves, and then we are kept by God's love. 
And so you can see, oh, that's the that's this repeating melody of this idea of being kept or keeping ourselves, and that yeah. becomes the melodic line. So you can almost summarize, give a thesis statement right. to a single book of the Bible, yeah. like mm-hmm. the book of John. The Gospel of John has in in there its its theme statement, that a you purpose would, statement, a purpose statement yeah. that you would believe. That's probably a big hint to the melodic line yeah. of the entire Gospel of John. That's the easiest melodic line to find when a, when an author actually tells us what it is. Yeah. <laughs> he says, yeah. "This is why I wrote." So but first you, John does that. John does that. Jude doesn't. Jude does bookends, beginning yeah. and end, and middle mm-hmm. give you in repetition, repetition would be another yeah. way in which we're we're finding that theme of keep. Yeah, or kept. So in even in a Jude. in a good symphony, uh, you'll hear you'll hear that things like top and tail, what you guys are mentioning. So a beginning and an ending, and maybe even a middle, where this where this melody will start out in the beginning of a song, and then it kind of goes away for a while, and then maybe in the middle of it, another instrument picks it up, and then goes away for a while, and then at the end, that melody comes back in full. Um, that that can help uh, tether together the entire the entire work. Right. So mm-hmm. biblical books and authors. Uh, were creative as they were led by the Spirit mm-hmm. in in putting these in our in our biblical text. Yeah, I mean these them. are some of the books of the Bible. I mean are just you know regardless of their inspiration, they're just masterful works of human literature. Right? They were mm-hmm. really well written, and and there's things like that in there. And I would just say with all of these tools of exegesis. Uh, I hope people are getting a sense for how rewarding this makes your Bible study, you know? Mm-hmm. So pick a book of the Bible and read it with that question in mind. Like, I'm going to figure out what the melodic line of this book is. And, and mm-hmm. that could be a new fun exercise for you to try and see what are things that are repeated through uh, the book of Ephesians that I haven't really paid attention mm-hmm. to before. If I was going to like write a theme statement of this book of the Bible, what would that be? And it's just a way of, that's that's going to make you uh, pay attention to a book and study a book with really different lenses. Yeah. This is the stuff that preachers do all the time that it's just so much fun. This is why I love being a preacher is <laughs> you just get to read these amazing uh, books of the Bible and anybody can do this. It's not like yeah. it's it takes some special skill to yeah. study the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. And the more we do it, the better we get at it. Yeah. Sometimes it, it takes work to, um, you know, Jude is a little bit easier. You can see it all on one page. Another example I've used before with with young preachers is First uh, and Second Samuel. So mm-hmm. probably one book in the uh, Hebrew Bible, Samuel. Um, it begins with Hannah's prayer in poetry, and it ends with David's prayers, um, which also are poetry. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the themes between those two really overlap. Now they're really far apart. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you know you're thirty forty chapters apart. Um, but the themes are there, really this emphasis on the anointed. Um, you know, David hasn't come yet mm-hmm. as Hannah prays. Uh, David's at the end of his life uh, when he prays at the end of Second Samuel. Hannah's prayer is future tense, Lord, you're going to, you're going to. And then David's prayer uh, at the end of Second Samuel is past tense, Lord, you have, you mm-hmm. have. That's good. That's good exegesis. And part of exegesis also is a category called theological reflection or what we could call New Testament connection. So we've been preaching through Nehemiah, but you guys mentioned Jesus in every sermon. Yeah. Uh, Jesus isn't in the book of Nehemiah, not by name. Um, so, so what is that? What? How do we get Jesus out of Nehemiah rebuilding the walls? And and why do we hear about Jesus even when we're preaching in the Old Testament? Yeah, it's not easy with a book like Nehemiah because Nehemiah uh, isn't quoted. Um, or even paraphrased or alluded to by any New Testament authors. 
Um, so and that's they had that's, trouble doing uh, theological reflection. With yeah, it. I don't know. I don't. They weren't given the assignment. I don't suppose. <laughs> um, but but that's the easiest way to get to the New Testament. If a New Testament author quotes the passage you're uh, preaching in, um, or paraphrases or alludes to it, that's the easiest. So Nehemiah doesn't have that. Um, but the themes, you can think of longitudinal themes, so themes that stretch across the, the text of the Bible throughout history, they have development and uh, fulfillment, um, promise and fulfillment, anticipation and uh, consummation. So take like a theme like the presence of God and just think of w- how the Bible develops this theme. It starts in the garden. Adam and Eve enjoy the presence of God. They sin. They're cast out of the garden and cast away from the presence of God. Uh, then, you know, you go chapters before God is speaking with anyone again. Um, and then, you know, there's a big momentous occasion in Genesis 12 when God appears to presence and speaks to Abraham, and he's promising him a place, land. That place is going to be a place of God's presence. Um, and even before you get to the land, what's the tabernacle? That's yeah. God's presence. Then what's later on the temple? It's the place of God's presence. And why is um, you know why is the um, the exile such a, a big deal? It's it's removal from the special place of God's presence to a foreign land is a, a move of discipline on God's behalf. And um, so you know, of course, then you come to the New Testament, and Jesus is. Um, the incarnation. He's the he tabernacled among us. He's we we beheld his glory. Um, he he's he's God, God with us in presence. Yeah, right. And of course, then you know, well, how does the Bible end? A new heaven and new earth, and we are God. with God. Yeah, and I think the you know so in Luke twenty four, Jesus is with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he explains to them that all of the Bible, everything written in the Moses and the prophets is about him. It has its fulfillment in him. And so all of those themes that you, you could trace, uh, and this is kind of the category of biblical theology, like what is the whole story of the Bible and these different themes within that, the presence of God, um, light, you know, the mm. uh, the the promise of a priest that would, you know, enact forgiveness and sacrifice and um, all of these different things, all of them have their fulfillment in Jesus. And so we can, with confidence, come to a book of Nehemiah that even though it's not quoted in the New Testament, we know Jesus said it's about him because it's in the Bible. And so that's just the work that we have is figuring out what is that stream. You know, that's the famous Charles Spurgeon quote that uh, just like every road leads to London, there's, there's, or there's always a road that leads to London. There's always a path from any point in Scripture to Jesus, mm-hmm. and we just have to figure out what the right path to get to Jesus is. Yeah, Spurgeon would say something like, "If you have a Christless sermon, like go, you need to quit mm-hmm. and go and lock yourself in your study until you have something worth preaching." Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, so how do we how do we preach Christ from uh, from every text text like Nehemiah? Uh, and stay faithful to the text. Mm. That's important because there are bad ways of doing it, even with really good intentions. So, and it sounds really nice and pious, very uh, spiritual to be yeah. Jesus-centered and to want to get to Jesus. I, I love Spurgeon, 
but I don't think he always rode into London <laughs> on quite the the smoothest path right. there. Sometimes yeah. he took some shortcuts. Sometimes he, yeah, yeah. yeah he went over some he hills, mowed through uh, some bushes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, well, I guess we could give some examples there, but I won't. Yeah. Um, yeah, but in a passage like a, a book like Nehemiah, you've got themes like temple mm-hmm. and place, you know, Jerusalem, um, the temple in Jerusalem. These things, they go somewhere, right? They, um, they have promises that preceded, of course, but they have fulfillment that comes after it. Uh, Jesus is the temple that, that comes later, and, and hence there's no need for that physical temple in Jerusalem mm-hmm. any longer. Um, so ways in which you could mishandle the Old Testament and get to Christ in wrong ways, okay, it'd be something like, um, Rahab's scarlet garment. Uh, anytime you see red in the Old Testament, it makes you think of blood. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, makes me well, think of maybe, you know, maybe it method. was just red, you know, it doesn't have to always <laughs> represent blood. Yeah. Uh, that, that could be coincidence more than it could be biblical theology. Now, if if we're talking about blood sacrifice, well, yeah, Jesus is the sacrifice. And and the New Testament speaks of his blood over and over again. That's really important, and we wouldn't want to miss that. Um, But but there's some ways in which people could pretend to do biblical theology. I think Dave Helm says uh, it's a bit like... um, a Where's Waldo book. Yeah. Mm. Like you're just sort of scanning for anything that looks like Waldo and there. Yeah. And then, um, well, maybe there's a, a more organic, natural, uh, faithful way of preaching Christ. And, and that, that way is actually more rich. It's, yeah, it right. might take more work to get there. It may take a little more time to explain, mm-hmm. um, but, but it's honest to the text and it's how God's word works. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, with those categories of biblical theology, especially to uh, to have the whole Bible story in mind, and the more familiar you become with everything that the Bible says, then you do become more uh, more. It becomes a more natural reading to see. Okay, this is where this is situated in here, and I do see um, again just those promise and fulfillment, or that anticipation, or even kind of an allegorical uh, connection in a good way. You know that here's a figure that stands maybe as a an explicit type of Christ or someone that at least is um, serving in some role yeah. like what Christ would. Either Adam as, would be, yeah, mm-hmm. Adam. You know, Adam would be a good type. Um, I think Joseph in mm-hmm. the Book of Genesis would be a good mm-hmm. analogy because Joseph is never connected to Jesus explicitly. But man, you look at this guy that was betrayed by his brothers, left right. for dead, um, suffered extremely so that he could bring about good for the rest of his family. You know, all of those things are drawing an analogous parallels to the story of Jesus. And so just the more familiar you become with those things. I think another good thing that we haven't mentioned yet is the category of covenants, mm. which, you know, talking about the structure of a book, um, I think there's a good case to be made that the covenants are really the the skeleton of the Bible, you know, and that you look at the different covenants. And then even when you're reading like Nehemiah, we've made this connection a lot. Okay. It's important to remember that this is in the Mosaic covenant and that there are things about that covenant that find their true fulfillment in the new covenant in Christ. And so when you know these covenantal categories, well, then it's really, that's a a really broad road to take to Jesus and everything that he fulfills for us. Yeah. Okay. So our people are listening to this and maybe this is the first time they've heard a lot of this stuff. Um, they're thinking, whoa, I didn't I didn't realize all this was going on. I don't know that I needed to know all of this was going on. 
Um, We've just, introduced them to a cooking show. Exactly. We right? just we you, just want to we just want to eat the cookies, even if you're not a cooker. Yeah. <laughs> so we got <laughs> people that just want to eat the cookies. So how so how can what would your recommendations be? Um, we can even go into resources for for our people uh, on how they can be better uh, expositional preaching listeners and consumers. You know, a, a great book uh, that benefited me a lot that I think would be useful for people that aren't even preaching or going to be preaching is Albert Muller's book on preaching called He Is Not Silent. And one of the things that is so good about that is it gives those really good theological foundations for why we preach this way, why we think this is so important. And I think for anybody to have that right sense of what God's Word does and why God's people are always a people that are formed by God's Word. And if you can come to church on Sunday with a higher expectation that God's Word does stuff, you know, Isaiah 55, God I send, God says, I send my Word out, and it accomplishes the purposes for which I sent it. If you come ready, and you're saying, you know, uh, from Nehemiah chapter 8, that we want a guy that's going to bring the book. We don't want a guy that's going to get up there and tell us funny stories mm. or his uh, most, you know, burning political insights. We want a guy that's going to bring the book because that's what's going to form me. Yeah. And I think that'll help you evaluate. Honestly, I think it'll just help you be really grateful for the ministry of our church because we are so committed to preaching the Word of God. Yeah. There's a thin little book um, by a guy named Ken Ramey, Expository listening mm-hmm. is the name of the book. Um, so this is getting to the heart of what preaching is, expository. So listening should be, in other words, we should be listening for the text. We should be listening for how God is uniquely speaking to us in this particular passage. Um, to do that is a humble move. To be an expository listener is a humble move because we don't come to church that way thinking, Lord, I need an answer on X. Lord, I know I need encouragement about Y. Well, you might, but you, that may not be what you get from the Sunday morning sermon, and you need to be okay with what God gave you through the ministry of the, the local church and the, the pastor uh, for that specific Sunday. If God is speaking afresh, then we can trust the relevance of His Word for that moment in that week, despite of, despite other things that we might be going through that we think God's Word isn't touching on right then. Yeah, so good. you come to you come to be a expository listener, and uh, and I think you're you're benefited by well, what you what you do receive on a Sunday. Yeah, yeah, and I would want to uh, I would want to care deeply about the expository preaching at our church, because if I'm not here someday and I'm going to another church or I'm looking for a church, then I want to know the difference between uh, good preaching and bad preaching. And I want to know when I hear expository preaching and when I don't. So um, so whether you're moving away uh, because of a job or whatever it is, and you're looking for a church, um, that should be a, a priority high on your list for, for finding a new church home. So, uh, so expository preaching should be should be important to all of us. I have three daughters now out of the house and members at a different church in a different state. Mm. Uh, so they had to settle on a church and join a church, and uh, and we were involved in in helping them think through that, Sarah and I, as their parents. But um, but but it wasn't our decision. Um, you know, this was a mutual decision, and they're grown-ups, uh, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> and uh, and but but it's interesting. Like 
okay, we have hopefully formed them and instructed them on what a church should be. Let's see if they put that to practice on their own. And by God's grace, they they have. But um, that could be one answer to why should a church care about what its preaching diet is like? Because you're going to send off those mm-hmm. kids and they're going to have to pick their own church. Or like you said, Drew, uh, families move from time to time and then what are they going to look for next? Yeah, that's really good. Well, guys, thank you for your time. Thanks for uh, considering these things with us. And uh, if you have any questions about this, you can email us at the church, info at dscabq.com. And we'd love to hear from you if you have any encouragements, uh, questions, or uh, desires for future podcasts that we can cover that would be helpful for you guys. Uh, We want to do that. Uh, That's all for now. Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Uh, But until then, let's keep spreading God's glory broader and deeper. I did say cooker. <laughs> Was that one take? Put that in the outtakes. Burning out my fuse up here alone. I thought, Drew's doing the podcast. Welcome back to the Desert Springs Church Podcast. Oh, wait. It exists to... <laughs>